Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Radha Kapoor, for the introduction to our guest today, Michelle Romano, co-founder and CEO of ClearCo. ClearCo offers fast, affordable funding for e-commerce companies to fund your inventory or your marketing needs. Michelle is a serial entrepreneur and also one of the dragons on Canada's Dragon's Den. We discuss what's misunderstood about scaling e-commerce companies, when venture capital makes sense versus revenue-based financing, marketing metrics that she pays attention to, and her aha moment on Dragon's Den that led to the founding of ClearCo. Without further ado, here's Michelle. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks. Really great. Thanks again for uh, for being part of the show. Um, so I know you've been an entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur throughout your entire career, but what was the origin story or the insight that led you to found ClearBank at the time and now it's uh, ClearCo? I'm a serial entrepreneur, which means that's the only thing I know how to do is start a company. <laughs> Was, was an engineer out of school, said no to all of my job offers, decided or figured out that worldwide supply of caviar was down by 95% and moved to the East Coast to build a fishery from scratch as my first business. Couldn't even make this up as I tried. My hands knee deep in, like sturgeon, literally. And that was actually a pretty good business until we hit a giant recession in 2008. And I found myself being 22 years old, selling the world's most unnecessary luxury product. So I learned very quickly that the world owes you absolutely nothing as an entrepreneur. From there, built an e-commerce company in Canada. This was a lot of the inspiration behind ClearCo because no one would fund me in the early day. I mean, the best offer I got was half a million bucks for half the company or something. And that didn't make sense because we were already doing like, I don't know, 200K in revenue at the time. But I learned really quickly, if you could spend a buck on Facebook and make $3 tomorrow, you could keep growing. And as a result of that, we rolled up a bunch of different e-commerce companies. It's now a small publicly traded company called Emerge uh, that's a bunch of e-commerce brands in Canada. From there, built another app called SnapSaves that I sold to Groupon in 2014. And after that, something really interesting happens. I get this phone call, Mike, and it's like, do you want to join the cast of the Canadian version of Shark Tank? And I was like, I think you got the wrong girl, but like, I'm going to just say yes to show up to the audition. So I show up to the audition, I get the role, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I must be the, I'm the youngest person on this panel for sure, I'm 28 years old, and I got to be the poorest person here on a relative basis. <laughs> and I think I saw the pitches way differently than anyone else. And in a single season, we see 250 pitches in 17 days. Like, even if you're a VC, I mean, this is true level back to back. These are almost all D2C e-commerce pitches because television doesn't really work well for like B2B SaaS software, right? So I'm watching all these founders are coming on the show. They're like, look, I'm willing to give up 10% of my business for my first 100 grand. And you ask those founders what they needed the money for. And it's the same two things always. I need money for Facebook ads, which is customer acquisition and growth. And I need ads, I need money for inventory. And so I, I, you know, talking to Andrew and I was like, why are founders using the most expensive capital in the world to do something with a fixed return? Make no mistake, I wish we could have used ClearCo to build ClearCo and I loved our seed investors, but we have now paid our seed investors 384 times their money. And there's, they, they just keep riding the curve as we grow. So it's very, very expensive capital when you give up a piece of your company because there's just no way to get it back. 
So I came back the next day, dreamed up this new deal type with Andrew, and I said, look, to the founder, I'll give you that $100,000 you were looking for. Instead of taking 10% of your business that I'm going to own forever, I want 10% of your revenue every day till I get paid my capital back plus 6%. So for 100 grand, I wanted $106,000 back. I said, use the money on ads. With 100 grand in ad spend, you'll probably make $400,000 in sales. For $6,000, this is a great deal for you. And the founder's like, this is a loan. And I was like, no, this isn't a loan. Because a loan would have a personal guarantee. So if you didn't pay me back, I'd take your house. And it would be dead on your business. So if you didn't pay me back, I'd also take your business, which is super punitive. <laughs> and I don't have a fixed payment timeline. I don't have compounding interest. I said, this is just a rev share. And I said, the only hitch of my deal is that I have to see your Facebook data and your payment processing data so I can understand if your business is really performing. So that was the beginning of Clearco, if you could believe it or not. From there, Mike, we have now you know, invested more than $3.2 billion and more than 7,000 different founders. So we're definitely the largest e-commerce investor in the world. The other thing that puts it in a sense of scale is the entire U.S. venture capital industry put up $23 billion last year. So the fact that we are even a piece on that pie is like pretty incredible for a company that was started out of my apartment with Andrew six years ago. We think that we're giving founders a, a really cool option in terms of another way to grow up their business where they don't have to take dilution, but they can get the capital to grow. Certainly, that's awesome. And so the inspiration behind it was on actually Dragon Den's um, episode, right? Yeah, believe it or not. What was the reaction just because obviously it was very different, hadn't seen before anything like this on Dragon's End. What was the action, reaction from other investors? Were they kind of like, you're out of your mind, Michelle, for just making this offer? Oh my gosh, they, were, they thought I was bananas. First of all, they didn't think I'd close the deal. Uh, because they were like, you know, a royalty deal on Shark Tank or Dragon's Den is usually like, I want a 10% royalty forever or till I get five times my money back, or they're very, very aggressive. I mean, this was till I got my money back plus 6%. I mean, it was, it was almost nothing. So the first thing they said is, she's never going to close that deal. And I was like, you watch me, I'm going to close this deal. But the second round of questioning that is even more fascinating is that the only way we could put out, you know, billions of dollars is by going to Wall Street. And I had 200 people that told Andrew and I on Wall Street that we were out of our minds. I think the rudest one said, ma'am, I don't think you understand credit. <laughs> um, and I was like, no, I think I understand e-commerce is what I understand. And I understand the data sources I'm looking for to indicate if these businesses will be good investments. And that was hard. The first guy that backed us was a guy named Ali from CoVenture. He's been on the show. He's great. He's great. He's uh, he's amazing. He's like, I mean, Ali has a tattoo uh, of a formula on his arm. Like, I just, I can, I can tell you that. Like, him and I get along really, really well. Um, but he took a he took a big risk on us in the early days, and he said, "Look, I I believe in this model," and um, it got really big. So I uh, I'm I've always been super grateful to him for sure. Yeah, Ali's awesome. Really great episode a few months ago. So as you said, what you trusted was. You understood, you know, the metrics when it comes to Facebook ads. Obviously, when you first talked to that entrepreneur on the show, you said, okay, this is the deal I want to do, or these are my terms, but I need to see, obviously, your Facebook ads and kind of get deep into the metrics. And obviously, now you've seen, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of companies with ClearCo. What do you think, what metrics do you think are most misunderstood for e-commerce brands? And what are the best measures of success? What we are looking for is your unit economics. We are looking for, you know, can you sell a basket size of $100 of stuff with $30 of COGS and 20 bucks of, of customer acquisition costs? And you have that margin of, you know, 
whatever it is, to make money every time you sell a unit. You really want to be breaking even, if not more, on your first customer. And then you really want to be looking at your retention stats. I think everyone is sometimes looking for a magic formula of what works. Retention is the metric in every single business, whatever your business you're running in in the world, that indicates the health of your business. Because I fundamentally believe you can trick anyone into doing anything once. Anytime, right? It's like, oh my God, that looks too good to be true. I'm going to buy that. These shoes are really comfortable, although they're six inches stilettos. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll all do something once. And we should do something once because that creates great innovation and trial. But when people do things twice, they like something or they need something or they want something. And that is really the health that you should be using. We have models that I couldn't even tell you what's in them because we have so much data that we've looked at over now such a long period of time. And so I don't think that's the value of using AIs. I don't even know every metric, but fundamentally, I know that what we care about is unit economics and we care about the retention of your customers. And that is timeless, whether the ad platforms change, that's timeless, whether your products change, that's timeless, whether the inventory suppliers change. Those are the fundamentals of what builds a great brand. Where does it make sense right now as well when it comes to consumer brands? Consumer brands are not really very attractive to VCs overall in the grand scheme of things. Currently, there's quite a few consumer investors who are now shifting to to enter to investing in more e-commerce infrastructure type companies instead of consumer companies. But when does it make sense for for consumer brands to take um, to go to for to partner with a Clearco instead of like a, a traditional VC? Let's actually take a step back and it's like when should equity be used? Period. Equity should be used when you're taking zero to one risk and you have no idea of the outcome. So a classic example of this is like, we want to launch a rocket and we need 250 engineers to do something before anything's going to happen. That's true zero to one risk. We actually have no idea if we're going to be successful in building our rocket or not. So that's the, the level of risk that an equity investor should take. And the way you figure this out is what you're going to use your capital for. If you are going to raise a bunch of venture capital or equity dollars and use it to buy ads, that doesn't really make sense because you know, you actually know that really well. You're actually giving the VC a really free ride on that. You know that you're investing a dollar and you're making $3 out of that. So why are you paying for that with the most expensive capital? You know, investing in humans and payroll is a little bit different. You have to see if like these have have strong enough break-even periods. Investing in inventory, you should not be using equity capital for that. And so when I think about building extraordinary products that are true zero to one that take a a lot of product development costs, I could see that being in the equity level bucket. But for the most part, when I look at the balance sheets of thousands of of e-commerce brands, I mean, 80 to 90% of their money goes between ads and inventory and, and a couple of humans on their team. And so that you should be able to fund that with far cheaper capital than equity. And then you need to like, look, the other thing about an equity investor is like, this is a marriage with no sex. You don't get out of this relationship anytime soon. And so you have to really, really like the investor that you are working with and understand that you are signing up for a really long-term commitment. Uh, with them. And that, that partnership becomes you know, really important or it, or it can become very, very painful. I know obviously your focus is e-commerce business, but how do you also think about helping, you know, digital brands maybe head into retail, for example, and like, and actually go more, more omni-channel? The whole goal of our platform is to be way more than capital when we launched. Like capital was like the first piece of coming in. But I mean, every business of ours, after you're doing, uh, you know, more than $100,000 in monthly revenue, gets your own coach. And so we help you connect with our other products, whether that's like the partners you should be working with at this stage in the company, you know, your insights tools that you should be like, we can show you how you're benchmarking relative to your competitors. Um, we also have our whole Clear X platform, which is 
we had so many people come to us being like, we're looking to buy e-commerce companies. And we're like, we have a lot of e-commerce companies. So it's like a buy-sell marketplace where if you're interested in selling your business at one point, we can connect you with a vetted buyer. We've actually sold 12 companies through our, uh, our team so far, which is really, really cool and a huge added benefit to being part of our portfolio. What actually goes into maybe launching like new products for founders, for for obviously companies, e-commerce companies, maybe partners too? Like what are things that you and your team thinking about where you believe that ClearCode can be helpful? What we can do is we can tell you where you can improve in your business because we're seeing, you know, I can see so many stats across how ads are performing on Facebook. So many stats we can be like, hey, you should spend your money here right now. This is actually, you know, going in a better direction. We can, to your last question, we can give you advice on being like, your business is probably the size and scale where you can start looking at offline sources of revenue. And, you know, if you're looking for a way to do your first pop-up shop, we can connect you with another founder that really grew very strongly starting with either wholesale or, or offline pieces of revenue. And so that's like one of the benefits of being in our community is that there's no perfect playbook on how to build these things, but we definitely have some some best practices. Our team is spending a lot of time coaching our founders how to get through two major changes right now. Number one, the supply chain issues that we're seeing in the market. And number two, the big changes on iOS 14 and the ad platforms. And there's lots of companies that are figuring out how to make it through and thrive during this environment. It's just about, you know, figuring out the right things. On the um, marketing piece, and obviously with the iOS update, and as well as, you know, when we talk about this a lot on the show about how there's no longer really clear like Facebook arbitrage opportunities that you have in the early 2010s, how do you think about building a brand today? We, we say this all the time on the podcast about how it's easier than ever to build like an e commerce company, but harder than ever than build a brand. When you're thinking about, you know, providing capital and partnering with brands, how do you think about this question? I think it's a trap when you say something is over. And I'll give you the best example of this. So it's 2010 and I'm running effectively a Groupon competitor in Canada. And if you, everyone I think remembers this era, but Groupon got big because we didn't just start sending weekly or you know bi-weekly or monthly emails. We started sending daily emails. We're like, the deal of the day arrives in your inbox at eight in the morning and everyone was super excited because it was like $20 for $40 of Thai food and everyone was so excited. And for the first year and a half, that was like absolute gangbusters. I would say most daily deal sites were making 80, 80% of their revenue off their email subscriber list. And then at some point, um, a combination of you know, Google didn't really like that. So they moved, you know, promotional emails from your inbox into a tab called updates. That was a big, or promotions, that was a big blow. Consumers stopped liking it because now every single company was increasing their email frequency. And I actually remember seeing this chart. We were seeing something like 10% opt-outs month over month. And so this is what it felt like. Like it just felt like email was dying. Like no one was ever going to use email again. It was going to be a disaster. And this is, I think, the same thing that people are feeling about Facebook marketing. Facebook marketing is not going away, but instead of being able to use a sniper to find exactly who you're looking for, you're now getting something that's probably closer to a billboard. And so that just means we're going to need more creativity and more different platforms. I would look at something like TikTok that has a ton of organic traction still that people are still seeing, you know, a massive amount of free eyeballs on as like coming upstream. I would see social selling. We've just started the period where people are going live. I downloaded this great Chinese app that was showing me how they were like selling products. And there was literally fruit vendors on the website. And there was a guy showing me a hundred different ways to chop his radishes. 
And I watched this because it was fascinating for like six minutes, right? That, that trend has barely even started in North America on social selling and live selling. So I think it's always a trap when you're like, well, what happens to these companies when email disappears? Well, what had to happen is Facebook marketing started to happen when emails disappeared. And then we had to figure out the next iteration. And so this will always be a combination of figuring out where the arbitrage is. We are definitely going to see the decline of some of these platforms and a lot more creativity around using them. And then remember, at the end of the day, the way you build brand ultimately is community. Brand is not what you say about yourself. It's what other people say about you. That is what built a brand. And so by reinforcing your community, by building referrals, by building strong repeat customers, that's what builds extraordinary brands that people come back to time and time again. I mean, you look at a brand like Nixware. I mean, these are really high percentages of referrals and people just post their content all the time because they built something that a lot of women stand for. After you got the investment from uh, CoVenture and Ali, like what was kind of next in terms of the actual growth of ClearCo? How did you think about partnering with entrepreneurs or, or kind of getting entrepreneurs on board that even this was like a new option because this was obviously a very new uh, type of capital that, that you're offering? We had to explain it to them. Uh, I don't think anyone understood. People understood what a bank loan was and people understood what an equity investment was. No one understood what revenue share capital uh, was because it largely didn't exist. So we went out there with the sales team and started explaining what we did. And we contacted e-commerce founders and we got in front of them, whether it was through Instagram or LinkedIn or whatever, and started explaining our product. And I think in a decade from now, absolutely every entrepreneur will know that this is an option that exists. We are still just scratching the surface of how many entrepreneurs could use this as an option. Because the reality is, is we don't at this point, we don't just fund e-commerce companies. We can fund SaaS businesses. We can fund mobile apps and games. We funded, you know, anyone that's effectively using capital for customer acquisition, we can really fund. And then we've expanded that into, you know, three different continents. And so we've been able to grow. But the you should not feel bad about having to explain your product in the early days. That's when you know you're onto something. And you should take all that feedback. But I can tell you, I mean, if we had just run Facebook ads hoping that people understood what we were doing, I mean, it wouldn't have worked. What were some of the learnings? Since obviously you've grown extremely rapidly over the past few years, what were some of the learnings that you thought maybe were like most surprising on your journey? I think one of the things that's really interesting about our story is that we had been, you know, I had seen this deal on Dragon's Den and we were running this experiment in the background, but the original company started by funding uh, freelancers. So we were funding Uber drivers and we were funding Airbnb hosts. And I remember actually saying like, look, it was 90% of our business at one point was Airbnb hosts and we were running this e-commerce thing in the background. And everyone said to us, like, you shouldn't pivot the whole company around this. But when you actually see your own data and when you're not lying to yourself, it's really important that founders trust their gut. You can always make data look really polished and when you put it out to market, but you know, you can lie to a lot of people, you shouldn't be lying to yourself. <laughs> and so we looked at how well the e-commerce book was doing. We looked at how fast the market was growing and we decided to make that bet, I think, very, very early on when that wasn't always clear. And so I think most people would be surprised at, at how scary that was. I mean, we had deployed $30 million in the Airbnb space. This was not like a small business. I mean, we had raised a whole Series A on that business. It was not like a, this was not like a small pivot that we did, you know, day two of the business. This was, this was a lot different. What do you think for any entrepreneur that's building a brand, uh, for building an e-commerce brand, what do you think is still 
maybe misunderstood when it comes to brand building today, or maybe something that they should be thinking about more carefully in the beginning? If you build a killer product, people will come. And I think sometimes in e-commerce, there's still too much around, you know, did you build good marketing? Did you put it together? I think that the still the companies that get really big are fundamentally things that, you know, do you have a product that when someone left their home and they went on a trip, they would be really pissed off if they forgot to bring with them? Like, that's really your litmus test. And it doesn't have to be good. It has to be great. And, you know, we can talk a lot about creative marketing and all of that, but fundamentally companies that make it to 50 or $100 million in revenue have just products that are so much better. And whether that's like the newest type of flip-flop that doesn't hurt your feet, that's ergonomical, we just funded a company in that space, to clothing that just fits so much better than the standard or made with better materials, like constantly that, that makes a big difference. And then I think it's being honest and authentic with who your audience is. That's like the other part is like, can you not be afraid to be a little bit controversial (laughs) um, in your marketing often. And it's not just about building a pretty brand. I think those are the ones that don't have that lasting power. It's about, you know, building something that stands up for for the crowd. Yeah, it's interesting because we've had this discussion a few times on the show of, do you need product differentiation in order to build like a big business within consumer brand. And so I think to your first point, you do need product differentiation if you do want to build like a very, very large business. I always think about like the protein powder business, like how many people have tried to like brand and do that. And like, there's a couple of them that have become big. So I think fundamentally they, they do have better products. Some of them are probably mostly, mostly branding and creativity with influencers, but I just don't think they have the repeat rates. Uh, that they're looking for. Do you also at ClearCo also look when you're evaluating whether you should partner with brands? Do you also, because I know obviously you look at, as you said, like retentions, number one, break even and unit economics. Do you also pay attention to the actual category itself? We don't actually, for the most part. We look at your growth numbers because I think that leads you astray. I have a great story in our early days where I had a VC call me and they're like, Michelle, I have a referral for you. I was like, oh great, what does the company do? And the guy goes, they make shoelaces. And he goes, they're really ugly shoelaces. And I was like, how much do they sell in shoelaces? He goes, they said they make $18 million a year selling shoelaces. I'm like, who the heck are you to be like $18 million of purchasers did not think these were ugly shoelaces. And I think that is the perpetual bias that happens in VC. Is like people talk about the gender bias or the geographical bias. The real bias is that if you're not going to use the product, it is very, very difficult for you to invest in. And so that's why it wasn't hard when Peloton was running around Silicon Valley being like, okay, a $2,000 stationary bike with a giant iPad taped to it, of course I'd buy that. Whereas I think the average person is like, no, that's actually kind of a bit crazy. And I think we've seen this time and time again. There is so many great businesses that work for what people think are niches, you know, small groups, but they end up being massive because the founder really understands how large these groups are. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I've had on VCs where some of them say it's tough to know to really understand a category if you are not the consumer, right? To actually invest in it yourself. But then I've had others who say that actually they much prefer investing in categories where they're not the customer because then there's no actual bias towards them if they would if they would actually purchase a product or not. So um, I think that part of it is pretty fascinating. I feel like even if they say that, there's still a bias. Like it's like marketing, right? You have to show 
a human something three times for something to feel familiar, right? So you see one billboard and then you see one retargeting ad and then, you know, someone mentions to you and you're like, oh yeah, I have to buy this thing. And your brain, like there's lots of psychology on your brain produces this familiarity concept with something that now seems normal or the thing to do. And so I think it's great that people are saying that. I have a harder time believing that. I think generally it is very, very difficult for us to make personal equity investments that are things that we that we don't um, you know, fundamentally understand. And it's, it's the reason when we look at our portfolio, it looks so much different than a VC's, right? We've backed 25 times more women than the venture capital industry average portfolio. Like that's mind blowing to me. That, that didn't happen because we were like specifically targeting women. That happened because we said, look, if we just use data to make these decisions, if we don't care about category, if we don't care about where the founder went to school, we would do so much better at this. A third of our founders are BIPOC. We funded a founder in every state in America. Like it's just, it's a huge group of people that I think for the most part were overlooked just because they didn't know a VC in their network. And also, I mean, that makes sense on the women front since obviously like in consumer, the women are the majority when it comes to making the actual purchasing decision, right? So it makes sense that that actually, if you have a a representation of who actually buys, you would think that there'd be a lot more products for women, right? It makes a lot of sense. So what is one thing that you would change about either investing in consumer brands or just overall investing or or financing consumer brands landscape? I don't know if this is something I've changed, but this is just something I'm observing. I think we're going to head into a period of a lot of consolidation in the space. I think this is, we've gone through 10 years of a lot of digital first brands being built. And now we are seeing, you know, starting with Therasio and in the Amazon space, but we are seeing increasingly amount of these companies being bought. I think a good thing, it's giving founders, I think sometimes the exit they're definitely looking for. I think at the same time, we're also seeing the top of the funnel just start was recreated all over again. During COVID, we saw double the amount of new businesses being created in the U.S. than any other year in the last eight years. And so when people talk about the great resignation, I mean, people truly sat at home and they're like, man, if there's going to be a virus, I'm going to build my dreams. I'm not going to go work for something else. And, you know, most people talk about this in the media as, well, people are leaving their jobs. Well, what are people leaving their jobs to do? They're leaving their jobs to start companies. And so I actually think we're going to see and are starting to witness this in incredible surgeons of the next wave um, of these e-commerce companies. So I think at the top, when you're a lot larger, I think we're going to see a lot of consolidation. And I think in the top of the funnel where people are just starting, we're going to see a huge amount of creativity come as a result of people leaving their jobs to build their businesses. That's a great point. That's a great point. So Michelle, tell us a little bit about your Venture Capital Scout program. Yeah, so it's not a venture capital fund, but it is a scout program. So there has always been this elite thing that's happened in Silicon Valley where you could be a scout for a venture fund. So if you brought them a deal, you got a portion of carry in that deal or a little bit of the upside of that deal. And it was a great way if you were thinking about getting into VC, if you were a founder yourself, or if you were a part of the startup community, to be able to, first of all, help the people in your network get funded. And second of all, you know, share a little bit of the upside on that. And so that's actually what we were able to launch is our Founders Fund, which effectively allows people to become scouts in the ClearCo network, where we pay a portion of how we fund our founders, um, but also allows you to effectively build that VC portfolio where you're getting to know founders, you're figuring out how to get them funded, and you're understanding part of their journey. So the, the our launch partners like include the founder of Andy Swim um, and Jada Cedar. Like we have Glamnetic. Like we have a lot of great e-commerce founders that have agreed to be our venture scouts, and we're pretty excited about it. That's awesome. So instead of being a venture scout in terms of you know investing for equity, it's actually becoming a partner of ClearCo. Is that right? Exactly. It's a venture scout for you know getting your company's rep share deals is the best way to think about it. 
What is one book that inspired you personally and one book that has inspired you professionally? I think they kind of all blend for me. Look, I love reading books of other entrepreneurs and I love the less varnished they are, the better. Because I remember that it doesn't matter what company you built, there were so many times that that company was close to death. And so I loved the story of how Lululemon was built. It was called Little Black Stretchy Pants. You know, I love the story of how Apple was built at the end or the story was written at the end. I think one of the best books that every entrepreneur should read is Influenced by Robert Cialdini that goes through really the six big psychological selling techniques that we all use. It is a classic. I try and reread it all the time. And then I think Never Split the Difference is the best book I read on negotiation. That's a really important read for most founders. Very original. I don't think we've had anyone uh, mention Lululemon's story or or how Apple was built or influence. Mostly when people talk about entrepreneurial books, they all point to Shoe Dog. That's not one book that, that's been mentioned on the show. So, so I'm glad that you gave us some new ones there, Michelle. Yeah, it's great. What's the best piece of advice that you've received, do you think? My best piece of advice is always just to start now. I think it's simple, but it is something that most people don't do. Most people are fully analysis by paralysis. Most people are thinking way too much. Compare this, is this is a swimming pool and you're going to have to jump in and the water is going to be cold. There is no way you're jumping into that swimming pool and it's not going to be pleasant. And so the longer you wait, the more scared you get. And businesses start and get built not on great early ideas. This is another huge myth is that these Every idea that was massive started as a massive, huge idea. Like, come on, even Uber did not start as, you know, inventing peer-to-peer ride sharing. It was a auto dialer to a black car company. And could you put a, hopefully a location coordinate? It was so much iteration to get them to the point that they got to. And I think if you're not willing to start as a founder, that that is what you have to do. You have to be constantly uh, going in. And then... You have to dig deep and be extremely resilient, right? Like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. (laughs) And this is a job where you're constantly in that ring. You're constantly having things go wrong. And you constantly need to show a lot of encouragement from your team, even when things are not going well. My final question to you is, what's one piece of advice particularly that you have for founders of brands? Never forget that you are number one, a product company, and your product needs to keep getting better and better. And so everything you can do working with your manufacturer is so, so, so important. And then instead of thinking about creative being, you know, a coin-operated machine or I can buy this many ads, think about how you build creative that people will want to share when they're not being paid. And that is ultimately what creates organic growth, creates strong retention, and creates strong community, and has always excelled uh, for these companies. Michelle, thank you again so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, it's been great. It's, It's awesome to be here, Mike. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Michelle. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at Michelle Romano. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.